gentlemen in my first lecture i had underscored the importance of science and technology as major influences on our society influences that have come to stay this is influences that are basically neutral but they depend on their user as to whether they are going to be benign or otherwise the society has to exercise judgment on how to use these powerful tools to shape its future at this stage one requires that sound common sense and awareness of ground realities that had made the late sardar patel such an effective administrator political analysts have compared him often favorably with bismarck in the way he brought to bear his perception of the situation as india was on the threshold of independence he saw that unless firm action was taken expeditiously in bringing the large number of large and small princely states into the indian union the newly independent country faced the danger of balkanization and so he acted swiftly and effectively and to him we owe the legacy of national integration this practical approach is very much needed in dealing with the numerous thorny issues that we face in life as individuals or collectively as members of a society or as citizens of a nation it is this approach that is needed in coping with the onrush of science and technology jawaharlal nehru had said this in his book the discovery of india i quote the impact of science and the modern world have brought a greater appreciation of facts a more critical faculty a weighing of evidence a refusal to accept tradition merely because it is tradition he went on but even today it is strange how we suddenly become overwhelmed by tradition and the critical faculties of even intelligent men cease to function only when we are politically and economically free will the mind function normally and critically well nehru was a visionary he saw decades ahead but no less important patel was down to earth who watched how he took the next step at the dawn of independence India was lucky to have them both complementing each other and not so lucky to have lost Patel so soon after independence but to return to Nehru's remarks he was talking about a rational outlook to deal with life's problems an outlook that is commonly called the scientific outlook he was expecting 
that after India became independent and all of us were left to manage our own problems ourselves, we would do so armed with the scientific outlook. Today we live in a free India which is feeling its way towards economic prosperity. In 1997, this is all we completed the 50th year of our independence from the British. But uh, are we now in the stage that Nehru envisaged when he said that only when we are politically and economically free will the mind function normally and critically? Well, far from it. We are still a long way away from achieving that scientific outlook which is so essential to our future well-being. Let me now come to what I mean by the scientific outlook and why is its relevance being felt now rather than in the past. Is it an individual trait or does it extend to societies, cultures, and civilization. To what extent is it prevalent today? What can be done to make it more widespread? In short, why do I feel that there is an urgent need for developing a scientific outlook uh, in our country? School children learning science are told that a scientific investigation consists of three steps, experiment, observation, and deduction. E, O, and D. I will call them in brief. This particular pattern of investigation has emerged after centuries of practice of science and the scientific outlook that I want to talk about lies somewhere at the bottom of it. Science itself arose out of man's curiosity about nature. Its origin lies in questions like what, how, and why that man put to himself and tried to answer. This is all Each answer gave rise to many more questions. While a correct answer closed one particular subject, it at the same time opened up several new ones. And this proliferation of questions and answers had led to the vast and expanding field of science that we see today. Alexander, before he became great, once complained that because of his father's conquest, he would be left with no more worlds to conquer. I do not think that scientists will ever be in that position in their battles to unravel the mysteries of nature. Every time they win a battle, they find that there are more questions, more battles, which have opened out. Let us see how this EOD process operates in science. As mentioned earlier, its beginning lies in some question about nature. Let us say about a certain phenomenon seen to occur in our physical world. Suppose for example, there is a statement to the effect that a current flowing in an electric wire generates a magnetic field in its neighborhood. How do we check this statement out? 
this is where the experimental part comes in the experiment is set up to observe the deflection of a magnetic compass needle in the vicinity of a wire carrying electric current direct current the experimenter can in many ways alter the various conditions which govern this experiment they call these experimental parameters now this could be the strength of the current the distance of the needle from the wire the change of direction of the wire and so on this will enable the experimentalist to study the outcome in as many different situations as possible another object of such experimentation is to eliminate the human element as far as possible and make the results objective thus it does not matter who performs the experiment the results are always the same the next step of observations is not as straightforward as it may sound the result of the experiment may be qualitative or quantitative in the latter case as in the experiment i just now mentioned the scientist ends up with a set of figures before any deductions can be made it is often necessary to detect a pattern in the observed results and this is where the so called signal to noise ratio comes in here signal represents the pattern which one is looking for against the background of a maze of unconnected data called the noise this is like if you are talking to somebody in a crowd you want to hear what your friend is saying but there is a lot of noise and in the background of this noise you have to pick up the signal which your friend is trying to send the analogy of a specific sound signal against a noisy background uh, is the basic uh, reason for the signal to noise ratio how does one extract the signal the human eye of an experienced experimenter is very often able to detect this but even if he has detected the pattern by his eye he must in any case check these out by statistical tests there are cases however of the proverbial needle in the haystack type where this is not possible and in any case help must be sought from statistical methods of data analysis recourse to statistical methods is in any case desirable to ensure objectivity unfortunately there are situations where even statistical methods are not able to give unambiguous answers the scientist is then back to the drawing board designing a new and better experiment the last but by no means the least step in this process is of deduction that is drawing conclusions from the experiment and making predictions for future experiments the scientist is of course not satisfied with drawing the conclusions for the one experiment he has just performed he is interested in making predictions for other situations not covered by the present experiment for example for situations beyond the range of his present experimental parameters
the purpose of this exercise is to prompt future scientific experiments to be designed to test these predictions in this way the knowledge base widens this interplay between theory and observations is what keeps science on rails without scientific theories to guide him the experimenter will not know exactly what this to observe all india radio archives recording if there is a scientific theory available he will be anxious to test it and see whether it stands up to his uh, experiment it is when the theoretical scientist tells his experimental counterpart some of his predictions that the latter can design suitable ways of testing them the other side of the coin is that the theoretician cannot expect to work in isolation either unless he produces scientific predictions which can be experimentally tested his theories will be considered sterile so both are necessary the theorist is needed for observers experimenters and vice versa the history of science is littered with theories which were sterile or which were ultimately proved wrong it is necessary to make a distinction between the two types the sterile type without any observable predictions did not contribute to the growth of science the other kind may have been considered viable for a while and prompted experiments which eventually led to their disproof but in this process the scientist was also able to advance his knowledge so rather than put up a sterile theory it is better for a scientist to put up a theory which can be tested and even proved wrong because that way your knowledge base advances indeed modern scientist knows of no scientific theory however right it may seem to be at present uh, will be entirely correct sooner or later some new experiment will be designed which will disprove some crucial prediction of the theory for a while this may lead to an apparent breakdown of law and order in the regime of science but experience has shown that a new enriched order eventually emerges thus the disproof of a well known well established scientific theory is regarded as a very exciting event by the scientific world it means that nature has considered man to have matured enough to appreciate yet one more of her bag of tricks in this connection sir herman bondy the well known astronomer has remarked i quote the essential thing in science is for the scientist to think up a theory there is no way of mechanizing this process there is no way of breaking it down into a science factory it always requires human imagination and indeed in science we pay the highest respect to creativity to originality it is of course clear that since every theory must live dangerously the casualty rate is pretty high so we do not honor scientists for being right it is never given to anybody to be always right we honor scientists for being original for being stimulating for having started a whole new line of work 
science is the most human of endeavor because it depends on cooperation it depends on people testing each other's work and it depends on people taking notice of each other unquote well i have spoken in detail about the scientific method because i wish you to note the discipline that governs the field of science there are several fields which claim to be scientific but are not because they do not stand up to this discipline often these outwardly look like science but are not so in reality these belong to pseudo science about which i will have something to say today as i have said before the scientific outlook need not be the prerogative of the scientist alone after all it does owe its origin to human curiosity about nature and as such every one of us whether a scientist or not is entitled to it indeed just as in the case of science progress could be achieved only when the scientific outlook prevailed over the innate conservatism so in the case of a society of human beings this outlook acts as an antidote to the evils of prejudice and superstition superstitions are born out of ignorance of how nature functions science is dedicated to the unraveling of the mysteries of nature as one particular mystery is solved we should expect the superstitions based on it to disappear yet this does not always happen in practice because of the lack of scientific outlook in the typical human being i give one example the early human societies ascribed divine power to planets this assumption probably arose as i discussed in my first lecture from ignorance of what planets are and how they move the scientific method that led to the understanding of why and how planets move was also narrated in the first lectures it took millennia to unravel the mystery but now that astronomy has satisfactorily answered most of the questions raised about planets by the primitive man we should expect this assumption about divinity in planets to be regarded as groundless yet this has not happened even in the technologically advanced countries this belief persists and even among sections of educated classes in the mid 1970s a group of leading scientists in the west including several nobel laureates were signatories to a circular denouncing the very basis of this belief i give an extract from their statement i quote it is simply a mistake to imagine that the forces exerted by stars and planets at the moment of birth can in any way shape our future neither is it true that the position of distant heavenly bodies make certain days or periods more favorable to particular kinds of action or that the sign under which one was born determines one's compatibility or incompatibility with other people in these uncertain times many long for the comfort of having guidance in making decisions 
they would like to believe in a destiny predetermined by astral forces beyond their control. However, we must all face the world and we must realize that our futures lies in ourselves and not in the stars." Unquote. I am often asked the question, is astrology a science? Astrology is the subject is that is based on the premise that planets and other heavenly bodies and events influence human destiny and their location in the heavens at the time of birth of a person determines that person's future. Since I am an astrophysicist by profession and my subject deals with heavenly bodies and events, the questioner who is usually uh, a believer in astrology seeks my endorsement of it. Now why is a scientist's endorsement required? Because as I mentioned in my yesterday's talk, science and technology have become the buzzwords and so uh, if you have their blessing on your discipline, so much the better. I should also narrate one episode which took place here after I joined and took charge of this inter-university center for astronomy and astrophysics. We had to put our name in the Pune telephone directory. So as usual we filled out the form and gave our full address, full name and so on and sent it to the Pune telephone and lo and behold when the directory came out we were listed as Inter-University Center for Astrology and Astrophysics. <laughs> I presume somebody in the Pune telephone thought that we had made a spelling mistake and corrected it. But that shows how much astrology is better known than astronomy in this country. However, since the question is about the scientific basis for astrology, it cannot be decided by the pronouncement of an individual, howsoever expert he or she may claim to be. This is all it has to be decided on the basis of facts by assessing whether the subject conforms with the discipline of science. So what are the facts? Suppose a scientist is asked to examine this question. Do planets influence human destiny? How will he go about testing the hypothesis that the answer is yes? He will not be satisfied by the prediction of a single person based on a single horoscope. First, he will require a set of well-defined rules on which such predictions are based. The rules should be unambiguous so that different persons make the same prediction from the same horoscope. Next, he will need to be convinced that these rules work in a statistically significant manner to discount the possibility of the predictions being right purely by chance. This will require a systematic study of a large number of cases under different control conditions. Let me give a simple example to illustrate my point of view. Suppose someone claims to predict with reasonable accuracy whether a coin will fall head up or tail up. How do you decide this claim? Will a single toss decide the truth of his claim? We all know that anyone can predict the outcome with 50% accuracy. 
this chance element must somehow be reduced. Suppose we ask him to perform the, this prediction test 100 times and he predicts correctly 50 times. Again, we will argue that this is not a significant indicator of his predictive power. But suppose he is accurate 51 times, then do you give him credit? What if he is accurate 70 times? The statistician comes to our rescue here. He has devised tests to decide whether the success achieved in a particular experiment is purely due to chance or due to some other factor which could be the ability to predict correctly uh, in this case or the possibility that the coin itself is biased. <laughs> so likewise, tests have to be made of this hypothesis about planets. Such tests have been conducted so far by scientists and they have shown negative results. But again, it is not always necessary to call upon the professional scientists to perform these tests. The educated common man can himself sift the evidence, provided he adopts an objective outlook. I suggest that you may examine the following aspects of astrological predictions to see if they meet with the scientific criteria. One, are the predictions worded unambiguously and preferably quantitatively? Number two, check the astrological columns of different newspapers for the same day and see if they match. Number three, look back to the astrological forecast for the year, which usually appear in the beginning of the year, and see how many predictions came through. And, and don't take uh, very vaguely worded predictions if they say an important political leader will die during this year. That is not an uh, unambiguous prediction. They should say who or at least quantify this more. Then uh, number four, when someone asks you that such and such this forecast came through, ask him or her what exactly was said and what actually happened. There is a tendency to remember only things that match and forget those that did not. There is a common test that I would like you to perform. Uh, probably Bombay is a better city for this than Pune. You go from Bombay airport down to Kulaba. I used to do that uh, when I was in Tata Institute. Let us say you will pass a large number of traffic lights. And you find some of them are red and some of them are green. Now you will find by the time you reach, yeah, you only remember the red light because that is where you have to stop and you are impatient. But the green lights you sail through, you hardly notice how many green lights you pass through. So this is what happens with astrology. Somebody makes a vaguely worded prediction and if it matches with something that happened, you remember it as a uh, credit. So now when an astrologer tells you a prediction, question him or her on the basic premises and the reasoning which led to that prediction. Don't just take that prediction, but ask how and on what basis it was caught. And uh, lastly, uh, do not go by a single prediction. Try to do a test in which the prediction is tested for, say, a hundred subjects. 
experiments carried out in the United States on the horoscopes of uh, thousands of couples, uh, some happily married and some with broken marriages, showed that the leading astrologers failed to tell correctly in a statistically significant manner which horoscopes led to successful marriages and which did not. So such tests can be done for this is uh, all India radio uh, horoscopes in reporting. India uh, in a uh, controlled fashion. In the spring of 1991, a leading magazine in Bombay had sought views of several leading astrologers in the country on the uh, forthcoming elections, which were held in 1991 later, and how different party leaders would fare at it and afterwards. There was hardly any match between what was said and what actually happened. The French astrophysicist Jean-Claude Pecker uh, has asked a question that no astrologer has satisfactorily answered. He says that there are people living in the north of the Arctic Circle and they cannot make their horoscope um, in the usual way as the sky that they see from there uh, is quite different from what is used by astrologers. So he's asking, do they have no futures? <laughs> <laughs>